All right, listeners, welcome to episode 66 of Know Your Enemy. I'm Matt Sitman, your podcast co-host, and I'm here with my great friend, Sam Edler-Bell. Hey, Sam. Hi, Matt. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm getting in the uh, holiday mood. That's what I was going to ask. Do you have holiday cheer, holiday spirit? Yeah, I expanded some of my holiday spirit and cheer on doing Hanukkah with my dad and little brother, stepmother yesterday, but there's more cheer to come. Yes, this will probably be our final episode of the year, I imagine. And thank you, listeners, for sticking with us all year. And yeah. uh, whatever holidays you celebrate, we hope you uh, have a great time. Yeah. <laughs> now, we got you a meaty episode to chew on from now until uh, when the next Know Your Enemy drops. And it's one we've been looking forward to for a while. We had on Beverly Gage. She's a historian at Yale. She teaches courses and has written on Gilded Age and 20th century political history, government and political development. And for our purposes, she just came out with a really brilliant book called G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century. It just came out last month from Viking, and we had her on to talk about it. J. Edgar Hoover. Seems like a piece of work. (laughs) (laughs) Not the best guy, but a fascinating one nonetheless. Yes, it really is fascinating. As listeners know, J. Edgar Hoover ran the FBI for basically 48 years. Almost his you know, entire adult life was spent in government service in that capacity. He was around so long that his life and work and career was a really fascinating entry point into all kinds of episodes in American history and kind of 20th century American political history, especially. His life as a lens into the history that we deal with on the podcast... I thought it was, it was really great. Indeed. So let's get to some housekeeping items. As always, we're grateful to our partners at Descent. They sponsor the podcast. One of the things they do is if you subscribe on Patreon to Know Your Enemy, and you can do that at patreon.com slash knowyourenemy, for $10 a month, you get access to all of our bonus episodes and, of course, a free digital subscription to Descent. And for $5 a month, you get access to all of our bonus episodes. And uh, one thing I did want to say, last episode, we uh, put in a plug for Descent to donate to them around the holidays. You know, like us, they're small and independent. They really, I think, work with young writers, new writers. I know Sam and I have both written for them and kind of owe them a lot. And one of the things they do is right now, if you subscribe for like $50 or $250 or $500, there's different gifts you get. A tote bag, a tote bag filled with gifts, even a food tour of the Lower East Side. So in our show notes, we're going to put in uh, the link to donate to Descent. Please do consider checking that out. They're great to us, and uh, they certainly need the support. Yeah, support Descent. Come on. As always, we want to thank Jesse Brenneman, our intrepid producer, who's done such a great job on the podcast all year. And we want to thank Will Epstein, who does the music for the pod. That's right. Uh, Well, shall we get to it, Sam? Yeah, let's get to it. Here's our conversation with Beverly Gage about J. Edgar Hoover. Enjoy. All 
right, Beverly Gage, welcome to Know Your Enemy. Thanks. It's great to be here. This book, your new biography of J. Edgar Hoover, there's so much we want to say about it and talk about it. It's long. It's uh, 864 <laughs> pages. But it, this sounds funny to say, but it reads very briskly. It's an incredibly absorbing book. And I actually was a little upset. I had to kind of rush through it for the podcast rather than leisurely reading it over a couple weeks, maybe. Yeah, I had the same experience, which is that every time I would tell myself, oh, I need to pick up the pace here, like, you know, not just read every word like I was reading a novel. I would have a hard time doing that just because the the writing from a sentence to sentence level is really so thrilling. And it, I'm, it's a hugely impressive given how much information you're wrangling into that story. Well, thank you. That's great to hear. And for anyone who's listening, the book is long, but the chapters are short. <laughs> and so it can be read very episodically as well. And there are lots of pictures. Yes. It, it's a beautifully produced book. And, you know, we want to start by talking about how you wrote this book, because, I mean, there's a lot of information in it. The feat of research you pulled off here is really incredible, but it's also a biography. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask about to start with was the process of writing a biography and how you kind of settled on this project. And I was thinking, you know, one of the most amusing arguments from Tocqueville's Democracy in America is that in democratic ages, biography as a form of history might decline, right? Equality teaches us not to really believe in the great man or great woman theory of history. Tocqueville also described it's kind of harder in democratic ages for individuals to feel powerful. And so I've always thought that the continuing American appetite for biography was a way in which we've kind of resisted Tocqueville's mm -hmm. prediction. <laughs> and I just wondered, you know, as a historian, how did you decide to write a biography of J. Edgar Hoover? And maybe just talk about, like, biography as a form of history to get us started. Yeah, it's something that I have given a lot of thought to as I have sat here for more than a decade with this one man. Right? Uh -huh. And this is not a celebratory biography. This is not a biography of someone who I love and admire. And in certain ways, it is a kind of old fashioned biography in the sense that it's about you know a man with a lot of power, but uh, I don't think of it as, as a great man biography. So I like to read biography and I like thinking about history, not only kind of as an intellectual enterprise, but as, as a way of forging human connections with the past. And I think biography is, is really good for that. I do think that Hoover is one of the few biographies that really spoke to me as a historical project, in part because he is such a good vehicle for telling kind of a bigger story about his moment, his time. And he has the great advantage of not really having a boring period. <laughs> I mean, maybe childhood, but, you know, we moved through childhood pretty quickly, and I found his childhood totally fascinating. But a lot of people have one moment in their lives where they're significant, and then moments when they're a lot less significant. And Hoover really didn't have that because he was the head of the FBI from the time he was 29 uh, to the time that he was 77, and then he just died while he was in office. So as a life, it had a lot of appeal to me for that reason, too. You mentioned just how much time you spent with this one man and his deeds and demons, <laughs> his deeds, his demons and, and the archive of his life and work. I'm always interested in this with with people who spend a long time on a biography. 
how did your sort of estimation of him as a sort of companion in a way through this project change over time? Did you get sick of him? Did you get angry with him? Did you become more sympathetic to him at different times? Just how was that kind of relationship? Yeah, it's funny. I was on a panel maybe a decade ago or so. I was in very early stages on this project, but it was with two of my colleagues here at Yale, David Blight and John Gaddis, and we were all writing biographies and it was a panel about biography. But one of the things that turned out to be really interesting was how different our relationships with our biographical subjects were. So John Gaddis was writing about George Kennan, who is someone that he knew. He had a relationship with Kennan. Kennan had invited him in to his private papers, and Kennan had said, just don't publish the book until after I'm gone. But then Kennan lived a really long time, so they got to know each yes. other very well, right? So that's that's one kind of relationship that you could have. David Blight was writing about Frederick Douglass, right. who is someone that he deeply admires, someone that everyone admires. And that kind of biographical relationship has its own dynamics where, you know, am I going to romanticize my subject? Am I going to be critical enough of my subject? And I had sort of the opposite problem of that, (laughs) which is that I was writing about this man that nobody likes and that I had, you know, a pretty critical and in many ways quite distant relationship with, right? There weren't a lot of parts of him that I I identified with personally, uh, much less (laughs) wanted to champion. Uh But I did, I kept finding him really fascinating the whole time that I was was writing about him. So I didn't get bored. I sometimes got perplexed about, you know, why I was spending so much time and care on someone who stood for so many things that I didn't agree with and who probably wouldn't have liked me very much. <laughs> but um, I, I never got bored, actually. And uh, that's partly because his files and his papers just lead you into so many other directions and so many other people's lives. Beverly, one quick question. It does strike me that there's certain things you pick up when you meet someone, the tenor of their voice, their, their kind of physical habits, whether they're fidgety or not. In that sense, writing about someone you've never met and trying to capture them, how did you handle that part of it? Yeah, there are a lot of tapes of Hoover, often in pretty formal settings. So him testifying before a congressional committee or making you know a cameo appearance in a Hollywood movie, things like that. <laughs> right. But there's no shortage of being able to see Hoover and hear his voice. The stuff that was actually the most interesting for me, just in an intimate way on that front, were that he shows up a lot in Lyndon Johnson's tapes and in Nixon's tapes. And so there you're hearing relatively unfiltered conversations. It's not even clear, certainly in Nixon's case and Johnson's as well, that the people they're talking to, including Hoover, know that they're being recorded. So those are probably the most direct access that I had to what was it like to to sit down and talk with J. Edgar Hoover. Just as a follow-up to that, I was wondering, writing this biography over the past 10 years, you know, what was available now that wasn't maybe to earlier biographers and what's left to learn? You know, what materials didn't you have access to, if any? Anything you really hoped to see but couldn't? (laughs) Yeah, a part of the appeal of doing this project was how much material had come out, particularly in the wake of the Cold War. There were a 
couple of collections and file releases that were really, really important. So one was all of the material that came out about various Soviet espionage investigations. So Venona, which was this famous decryption program that the FBI and the army ran Another was the solo files. These were two informers that the FBI had within the Communist Party from the 50s through the 80s. Uh, One was the international representative of the Communist Party. One was uh, his brother, who was the secret courier of money between (laughs) the Soviet Union and the the CPUSA. Um, So those are amazing files, both for the informer experience and what the FBI was doing, but they're actually these great social history files because they're just going to all of these meetings around the world, uh, you know, gatherings of radical organizations, getting all the minutes and the publicity materials, you know, everything that's happening and bringing them back. So that was a great source. Some of what I had access to was just that the technology has changed now. So I found out really interesting things about his early life because I was able to do different kinds of genealogical research that then let me do newspaper searches, which then turned up things like his grandfather's suicide and his aunt's murder and these family scandals that he had never talked about. And that if you didn't know to go looking for them, you you couldn't have done that. I think the greatest still relatively untapped resource but was hugely useful to me, but I couldn't get through all of the material, is that under the JFK Assassinations Act, the National Archives has been releasing all sorts of documents, many of them related to the assassination, but in this case, in uh, 2017 and 2018, they released the materials of the church committee And there are just tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of pages in there. They're a little hard to to get through, but that has lots of new detail about some of the most famous episodes in FBI history. You know, that's where I found evidence that, in fact, Hoover had informed the White House, the Attorney General, Congress to some degree about certain parts of COINTELPRO, which I think people had often thought the FBI was doing without telling anyone about it. So there's lots of rich material in, in all of these files. I tried to get through as many of them as I could. It's a huge bureaucracy. I did not read everything that J. Edgar Hoover touched and no one could. And then, of course, the nature of FBI files is that a lot of them are still pretty heavily redacted. One file that is very funny to read is if you file for the FBI's file on the CIA, a lot of those documents, you know, they'll have a date, they'll have an author, they'll have an opening line that is something like, the most amazing thing just happened, and then all the rest of it is redacted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the public is allowed to know that something amazingly good has happened, but everything else about it we're not allowed to know. I think one of the things that struck me right away is that the public image that Hoover and really his acolytes and fans cultivated for him of this powerful sort of cowboy figure, obviously deeply conservative and Christian and a maverick and mammoth figure on the American scene for all of these years, a moral political force for law and order. There is a really big gap between that sort of carefully cultivated public image and sort of maybe how he felt to himself and how people most intimate with him may have seen him, which is much more 
as a deeply self-divided, sometimes anxious, meek, small, as I wrote down here, more banality, less evil, (laughs) more in line with sort of the G-man, you know, the government man, this figure of a sort of bureaucrat, an office goer, and that he sort of built the FBI as this kind of, you know, there's there's moments where you call it this flawless paperwork machine, that his sort of self-concept for the office, especially in the beginning, was much more about adding sort of technological innovations and bureaucratization into the work of law enforcement. And that, that this kind of figure of the government employee as this kind of office worker was much closer to sort of the way that he sort of conceived of himself and, and conceived of the work in his image. Yeah, that's so interesting to look at some of the divides as well as some of the places that these themes overlap. So if you look at Hoover's public image by the late 1930s, which is when he first becomes really famous, he is America's number one lawman. He's often depicted holding a gun, vanquishing criminals, et cetera, et cetera, right? This kind of hyper-masculine top cop image. And what's really interesting is not only that that Uh, doesn't reflect a lot of who he actually was, but also that that's not really what he intended for the Bureau. So as a child and then coming of age in Washington, first of all, he's born into this world of government service, of career government service, which is really unusual because the federal government didn't do that many things in the 19th century. So he's kind of born into what he becomes, which is a lifetime government employee. And as a kid, he's basically a kind of brainy, anxious child. He's not much of an athlete. He is valedictorian of his public high school, this white public high school, kind of the top public high school in Washington at the time. He's a debater. He is the cadet captain for a kind of early-ish version of of a kind of ROTC at the cadet level in high school, but he doesn't join the military. (laughs) And it's not even clear to me that he ever shot a a weapon or knew how to do that. He didn't investigate crimes, etc. It seemed like his interest in the ROTC stuff was like that it was very fastidious and ordered and it had that kind of quality of him. Hierarchy and ceremony. But not so much the brawn and, and weapons or anything like that. Right. Hierarchy, ceremony, clear rules. And I think, you know, the camaraderie of other boys. It's clear that uh, throughout his childhood, then into college and then into government and the Bureau itself, he's really drawn to these worlds in which, you know, men are bonded together through kind of common purpose uh, as well as friendship. And he's just in those organizations over and over and over again. And then he builds one around himself. So he never has to leave one ever. (laughs) Exactly. To pick up from what Sam was saying, I thought one of the fascinating details from J. Edgar Hoover's youth was his time in college, right? Working at the Library of Congress and the kind of buzz of new collections coming in and the catalog card system and processing forms and files and texts. Just how similar his work was in some ways at the Library of Congress as a young man to 
his place as a G-man, as a government bureaucrat. This was his great talent in many ways, right? It wasn't actually investigation or crime fighting. It was the ordering of information. And he learned that in his first government job, which, as you say, was not at the Justice Department or the Bureau, but was at the Library of Congress, where he worked during the day while he went to law school at George Washington University at night and continued living at home for all of college right there in Washington. And what was fascinating to me when I started looking at the Library of Congress material was that he was there on the kind of cutting edge of information technology of that moment, which was the Library of Congress classification system for books, which was just being invented during this period and kind of formalized and operationalized like the Dewey Decimal System, which was its rival. And so Hoover is there learning all of this. And it turns out he's just phenomenally good at it because it's the way his mind works. He is this kind of academic kid. And so he really takes to it. And then it's super useful when he moves into maintaining and creating files in the Justice Department. I think there's a chapter later on that is uh, comes from an accusation against his FBI at some point later in the 20th century that's called Terror by Index Card. <laughs> I remember if it's a chapter name or it just comes up in the book, but the index cards are already from his very beginnings in government work so important. The idea of just keeping track, keeping tabs. Yeah, I think that was a quote from Vito Marcantonio, who was one of the the, the kind of few true labor, vaguely communist-affiliated representatives in Congress. (laughs) Well, before we move on from this earlier period, the other important thing about his college years, of course, was his fraternity, Kappa Alpha, at George Washington. Yes. You know, which had that camaraderie with men, of course, that continues to be so important in his life. And he really quite deliberately recruited from the fraternity for many, many years. It was a explicitly Southern fraternity that had been founded in the aftermath of the Civil War to carry on basically the the lost cause of the White South to honor the memory of Robert E. Lee. And so by the time Hoover joined it in the early 20th century, it had spread throughout the South and was this sort of avowedly Southern segregationist fraternity that had lots of Southern Democrats in Congress who were members and alums and would hang out at the local D.C. chapter house uh, where Hoover was. And its most famous figures were people like Thomas Dixon, who was famous novelist. He had written this book called The Klansman that became the basis for Birth of a Nation, which came out during the years that Hoover was in college. And so it was just a fascinating way into thinking about you know, what was his, his racial and racialized thinking early on? Where did his racism come from? Kappa Alpha just opened up a, a whole new world to me that was fascinating to explore. I thought you very deftly showed that segregation was ramping up in a way in the aftermath of, of Reconstruction. There, there were moments where you say in Washington, D.C., as the federal city, especially African-Americans had some rights. It wasn't totally segregated, maybe. But over the course of Hoover's life, it was becoming more segregated and kind of capturing that it wasn't just like a static thing that he was born into, but a process that that he experienced over his life. And so that phase of American history, especially in a place like Washington, D.C., 
I just thought you really captured those dynamics well. Thanks. That was one goal was to think about segregation during these years as a process and a process that's happening around him and that he ultimately comes to participate in, in pretty explicit ways. So he goes to segregated schools, but his neighborhood is not fully segregated at this point. And so he's kind of in the mix of this multiracial Washington, but is being channeled into a segregated school system, ultimately into a segregated university and into Kappa Alpha. And it's also really interesting that the federal government itself is beginning to segregate employment in much more rigid ways uh, at just the moment that Hoover is entering the federal service. Uh, So this really happens under the Wilson administration, which is exactly the moment that Hoover enters the federal government. And so you can just see this kind of um, education and observation of a certain kind of racial order really taking root, but as you say, not in a static way as uh, something that's being invented and that's being enforced, which is what he, of course, goes on to, to take as part of his mission. Well, I think we should maybe talk for a moment about the beginning of the FBI, what Hoover was setting out to do, and then what what sort of political surveillance that starts to become a part of that work. In many ways, it was kind of chance that he ended up going into the Justice Department as quickly as he did and never leaving because he happened to graduate from law school in the spring of 1917. And many of you out there know what was happening (laughs) in, in the spring of 1917, which is that the United States was entering the First World War. And so he goes into the Justice Department at just the moment that the Justice Department is getting all of these new duties, which require it to both track wartime dissenters, political radicals, non-citizens who are deemed dangerous to the nation, and then to contain them and figure out uh, how to repress or uh, make cases against them, right? And the federal government really hadn't been doing much of that before. And so he is one of the, the, the first people who learns how to do this. He goes to work for the Justice Department and gets assigned to German internment, which is something we don't think a whole lot about, but there were several thousand Germans interned during those years of the First World War. And then he's so good at that, that when the war ends and these new concerns emerge about revolutionary radicalism in the United States, radical movements, the creation of the communist parties, anarchist violence, he at the age of 24 is put in charge of this thing called the Radical Division, which is a new experiment in kind of keeping track of of left-wing radicals in the United States. His main task is to help orchestrate uh, what become known as the Palmer Raids, which were deportation raids aimed first at anarchists and then communists. And he's incredibly important and really instrumental behind the scenes in ways that he later denied because they became so controversial. I think it's worth stressing here the keeping tabs aspect of this, keeping files on people. We mentioned he went to law school at GW and how much he hired from his fraternity and GW. And he was looking mostly for lawyers and accountants. 
<laughs> right? And I think that says something about like the intentions with which he went into this government service. I really appreciated the way you kind of portray Hoover as almost reluctantly getting into some of the high profile cases, John Dillinger, Bonnie and Clyde, you know, the photos of Hoover with the Tommy gun, the big raids, the shootouts, those kinds of things we associate with the FBI. That was not what Hoover started doing. And he kind of resisted that as across the 20s and 30s that came to be more and more of what would become the FBI, what they would take up. Yeah. When Hoover took over the bureau in 1924, He came in, first of all, as a reformer. He is 29 years old at that point and is appointed first as a kind of placeholder as the acting director because the the previous director, a guy named William J. Burns, who was this like very spectacular private detective type, there have been a whole series of corruption scandals, abuse of power scandals, both the kind of political abuses of power in the Palmer raids and then just, you know, basic poker games, whiskey peddling, bribery stuff of the early 20s. And so when Hoover came in, he was charged with cleaning things up, getting away from all of that. And he took it pretty seriously for the remainder of the 20s. And his vision was very much a kind of progressive and progressive era vision that the Bureau was going to be this kind of small, tight-knit group of college-educated lawyers and accountants who were going to use, you know, the latest scientific methods and filing systems and efficiency, forensic science, statistics, right, all of these kind of forms of professionalism and expertise to kind of clean up not only the Bureau, but to be a resource to other police departments around the country, but that it was going to be a white collar environment. They didn't regularly carry guns. They didn't have jurisdiction over very many things, right? I mean, still today, almost all criminal law enforcement is at the local level in the United States. So the federal government has a very specific set of duties. And that was his vision. And he was pretty happy about it. He kind of perfected it by the early 30s and thought, I think that he was just going to ride that out for the rest of his life. But then not only the depression, but this, this crime wave comes along in the 30s with figures like John Dillinger and others. Um, And Franklin Roosevelt says, you know, this is a federal matter now, we're going to have a war on crime. And so all those nice gentlemanly lawyers and accountants have to learn to shoot guns and go out and fight criminals. And uh, they eventually learn to do it, but it, it wasn't what they thought they were signing on for. And they screw it up a few times as they're learning what what on earth they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. It didn't become the FBI until 1935, which listeners will know is a few years into Franklin Roosevelt's first term. It was among the alphabet soup agencies, right? Civilian Conservation Corps, that kind of thing, the three-letter initials. But you mentioned FDR's war on crime. How much would you situate what we now think of as the FBI as a kind of New Deal project or a New Deal institution alongside similar three-letter government agencies. I think it was almost a pure New Deal institution, especially in the 30s when it's expanding in this way. And one of the things that really interested me about looking at Hoover's 
life and career was to think about these moments when liberals from presidents like Roosevelt or Lyndon Johnson down to Democrats in Congress, Republicans as well, and then liberal establishment more broadly really supported Hoover, helped to empower him. And that's particularly notable in the 30s when the FBI gets lots of new crime fighting power. Franklin Roosevelt pushes them back into political intelligence work, domestic intelligence during the war. And he also really encourages Hoover to ramp up the FBI's public relations and kind of sell the work of government to the American people. And I think for Roosevelt and for many other New Deal liberals, this didn't seem like a great contrast with the social welfare state, right, which is how we kind of think of the New Deal. It was kind of part of this big program to use activist government to bring security and stability to the American people and fighting crime and fighting political disorder were part of that. And they didn't seem necessarily to be in contradiction with what we tend to think of as New Deal liberalism. Yeah, that comes through so clearly in the first couple hundred pages of the book about just obviously the predecessor organization of the FBI bears the marks of the progressive era, as you were saying, you know, they start fingerprinting, you know, they there's technological innovation and efficiency in the service of government work, and in, in particular in service of the problem of crime and sedition. And then with the New Deal, it's that, but it's also, you know, the federal government is going to be doing more, and it's going to be leading and sort of projecting this sort of federal power on the national scene in this much more activist way. And so it sort of bears the marks of, of a New Deal organization, too. Yeah, the title of the book, which is G-Man, was a name that came out of the 1930s. It was the nickname for FBI agents and for Hoover himself, but it stands for Government Man. And that, I think, was the image of the FBI, that they were sort of the avenging enforcers of this newly empowered federal government. And they're actually great cartoons from that era, you know, which have, you know, everybody labeled like federal government fighting for the American people kind of things. And and they're about the FBI and the way it's part of that vision. Well, we've kind of alluded to this, but something that was so important to Hoover from the beginning was the kind of man that he imagined as the ideal FBI agent. And of course, that sort of begins to implicate sort of his sort of homosociality and even homosexuality, which comes through in the book too, which is sort of his ideal man is sort of manifested in the ideal FBI agent that he conceives of. Of course, you follow his lifelong relationship with Clyde Tolson, which was fascinating to me and a kind of very deft, careful examination on your part of that relationship. But could we talk a little bit about Hoover's sort of ideal FBI agent and then how that relates to how he thought about and lived among men? (laughs) Big question. How did Hoover live among men? (laughs) Well, he had a very particular idea of who he wanted as his 
representative, as his agents, as the people who were going to be closest to him. And all of those things were part of the kind of same stew. So in his early years as director, when the FBI was pretty small, it was pretty tight knit, he set up these personnel policies that gave him enormous control over who was going to be in the agent corps in particular. So some of the basics will be of no surprise to anyone who thinks, what does a mid-century FBI agent look like? (laughs) So it's a tall white guy wearing a suit and a hat and shiny shoes and really trying to project this image of not only this kind of upright, incorruptible figure, but also of being a a sort of white collar figure, someone who is not like an ordinary cop. You know, the FBI often had to work with police forces, but also Hoover had a lot of disdain for other levels of law enforcement as being kind of thuggish or uneducated. And he took his mission to kind of create this shining core of of gentlemen agents. He also chose them from institutions he knew. As we said, a lot of George Washington University, a lot of Kappa Alpha. And one piece that was really fascinating to me was that he was very explicit about taking advantage of basically a loophole, which meant that his agents were not part of any formal civil service process. So if you have been part of the civil service, you know, people take an exam, there's a pool of employees, you choose from those potential people, and that that's who becomes your employee. Well, Hoover was dedicated his whole life uh, to maintaining personal control over the hiring of his agents, keeping them out of the civil service pool so that he could choose basically the same man over and over and over again. And so he would have this kind of identical core of agents who basically were just a lot like him. I mean, Beverly, Sam mentioned Tolson, who was Hoover's longtime companion, to use the the euphemism from obituaries in the early 80s. (laughs) But before that, I thought one of the most fascinating parts was the correspondence you found between Hoover and another young man, Melvin Purvis, and the complicated dance of their letters, the way you kind of interpret them and kind of see the way... I don't want to put it too strongly, but that there's almost like a low-level flirtation in those letters. I thought that correspondence, it was where maybe you didn't have to guess quite as much and was one of the richer, I think, kind of sources for thinking about Hoover's sexuality, if I can put it that way, that you drew on. Yeah, one of the frustrations of writing about Hoover is that a lot of his personal papers and correspondence were destroyed at his death by his request. And so there aren't that many collections that allow that sort of really kind of intimate view into his more personal side. But the the Purvis collection really is amazing for that reason. Uh, Melvin Purvis became famous in the mid-1930s as the guy who got John Dillinger, right, the head of the Chicago field office, the big shootout at the Biograph Theater. And, and so he kind of had this burst of celebrity during that moment in his own right. But the correspondence is from the period before that, 
which is his rise beginning in the in the mid 20s and then into the the 30s through Hoover's FBI and he's really fascinating so like many agents he was a kappa alpha that's why Hoover went ahead and hired him uh, he entered the bureau as a really young man and as he's rising through the ranks he develops this kind of intimate personal relationship with Hoover that's then documented in these letters where uh, often they're, you know, exchanging tips about their pets or their ear infections or a variety of things. Some of it is about bureau business. And then some of it is this very flirtatious, almost sexualized banter, both about each of their, but in particular Purvis's good looks, his relationships with women. And I read a lot of that as, as, as a kind of, you know, code for Hoover's real uh, kind of flirtatious interest in Purvis. You can see Purvis both responding to that and trying to hold it off. There's a really fascinating <laughs> set of exchanges. You know, it has a kind of Me Too vibe to it because like Hoover's writing these letters saying, don't call me Mr. Hoover, just call me J.E. And Purvis writes back and says, I'd be really more comfortable just calling you director. And Hoover says, don't call me that. I really, really want you to call me by my first name. So then Purvis kind of does that. I mean, it's just, it's a complicated work relationship, personal relationship, flirtation. um, And they're just fantastic letters. I kind of thought one of the the real telltale signs for me was the way Hoover would sometimes kind of displace thoughts onto his secretary, a woman, right? He would say, oh, the last time you were here, Purvis, uh, she was all a titter because you're so handsome or something like that. And he would kind of talk about Purvis and the secretary. And it was like a running joke in the office, even like Hoover would say it you know, to other colleagues and in the office. I thought that was to me, one of the real tales of that correspondence. Right. He's trying to get them to go to, you know, bureau balls together. There's a whole set of jokes about whether his secretary is going to be wearing a a cellophane gown because Purvis has so overwhelmed (laughs) her with his, you know, powerful good looks and sexuality. And you think, wow, okay, there are a lot of ways to read this. It's somewhat embarrassing for me, but Beverly, we had dinner in New Haven a couple weeks ago and the first thing I asked you was, is the cross-dressing stuff true? That's the first thing everyone asks. <laughs> really? I, but you come to the conclusion that probably didn't happen. Well, I come to the conclusion that we don't have any evidence that it happened. And therefore, I think we should uh, say that it, it, it didn't happen. That comes from a very useful biography, somewhat sensational at moments, but really valuable, useful biography from a British journalist named Anthony Summers, who did a lot of kind of muckraking work about uh, Hoover's personal life in particular in the early 90s. That is where the dress story showed up. But the dress story comes from a woman who says that she was at an orgy at the plaza with Roy Cohn (laughs) and her ex-husband, a guy named Rosensteel, who was in fact a friend of Hoover's, and that she showed up there and Hoover was there waiting in a dress and a boa and all of this. So so that (laughs) is the story. It obviously has had legs. It's part of uh, Hoover's public image now in indelible ways, but she's not a very reliable narrator. She actually served time in jail for perjury on something else. 
She was also in a very contentious divorce with Louis Rosenstiel. And, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff came out right. kind of in the wake of that. Um, but that's the dress story. Yeah, well, I was going to say that that narrative is a sort of stand in for, you know, the kind of swirl of rumors about his intimate life in a kind of like annoying ham-fisted American way. It's like this this man who is probably just gay got translated into, oh, and he wore dresses. <laughs> but in your book, as he sort of settles on and with Clyde Tolson as his lifelong companion, his uh, right-hand man at the FBI, and a person who basically they engaged socially together as a, as a couple. I mean, when invitations were extended to Hoover, they were always extended to you and Clyde. And if Hoover missed something, he would say, I'm sorry that me and Clyde couldn't be there. You know, if you just looked at it from the standpoint of today, you would think, okay, there's Hoover and his partner. But I wanted to point out in this moment in the 1930s, this sort of abstemious, buttoned up young life does give way to some amount of libertine indulgence as he and Clyde are able to move through worlds, especially the world of Broadway and Hollywood a little bit and make friends in a, in a place where the kind of hardcore manliness, conservative Christianity that was his main life up to this point gave way a little bit. Yeah, the relationship with Tolson, which, as you say, uh, plays a pretty big role in the book because they were together for so long, for more than 40 years, both professionally and personally, is a really interesting combination of openness and then sort of secrecy and inaccessibility. So their public relationship and their social relationship and their professional relationship was extremely open. Tolson was the number two at the FBI, but he was also Hoover's social companion, basically his spouse. They had all of their meals together. They traveled together. They, as you say, went to, to nightclubs and racetracks and dinner dates and the whole thing, family gatherings, funerals, uh, etc. And all of that is extremely open. It's really well respected and is just in Washington, in New York, in L.A., just a part of their social fabric that everybody goes with and accepts. And then, of course, there's an element of it that's very secret. So we don't know if they were having a, a sexual relationship or what that entailed. We, of course, do know that they themselves denied that this was a gay relationship. And then they, as heads of the FBI, went on to police the lives of many other federal employees who end up being fired for being gay. Right. <laughs> but the 30s is just a really interesting moment because while those elements of, of kind of openness and secrecy are pretty constant, the 30s are this, this moment before the Lavender Scare when they are, in fact, going up to the Stork Club in New York, hanging out with Walter Winchell, going to Broadway shows, hanging out in Hollywood, Hoover's becoming a celebrity, and they're moving in worlds where the existence of gay people, of gay culture, right, is not at all unusual, is pretty widely known, and they're just like club hopping. And the interesting thing is that that's all really well documented in gospel columns, Walter Winchell, Leonard Lyons, Hedda Hopper. And there's lots of kind of jokey innuendo in there as well about, you know, Hoover and his right-hand man or the, the well-dressed lads who are always together. 
I appreciated, Beverly, your retrieval of the, uh, now it's out of favor as a term, but the concept of the bachelor. I actually thought that was really helpful. And it is a kind of forgotten semi-euphemism. Yeah. And that was how Hoover was identified for his whole life. And, you know, some of the funnier moments with that are when he is held up as, you know, one of Washington's most eligible bachelors. (laughs) And you look at the the (laughs) list of other men, many of whom we now know were gay. And he occasionally would have, particularly when his mother died, he had a kind of performative public moment. He lived with his mother till he was 43 years old, which is when she died. And for the first part of his life, that was part of how he explained why he was still single. Once she died, there's this flurry of interest in the press about whether he will now get married, start dating women. And so he briefly kind of pretends to uh, have this romantic relationship with Ginger Rogers' mother, of all people. She plays along, right? They were friends. I don't think that was really much of a much of a relationship. It was sort of a PR move. And I don't think he ever seriously dated a woman. It is interesting to me that at this moment where he is in his private life beginning to indulge a bit, go to nightclubs, you know, be friendly with Broadway stars and live this sort of more open yet secret life with Clyde, At the same time, Hoover is beginning to embrace talking about crime as a a moral struggle and sedition as a moral struggle. There's a line somewhere where he says, crime will play bridge with you, that crime dances with your sons and daughters. So at the very same time that he's allowing himself some more, what we might call moral indulgences in his life, the position he has at the head of the FBI is much more sort of telling a story about disorder, which relates it to vice and abnormality. Yeah, he never makes it really easy on his biographer by being super consistent. There are a couple of issues that he's super consistent on, but this is one of these fascinating moments of contradiction to some degree between public and private life, but even between different aspects of his public image. One of the pieces of Hoover's life that I found the most interesting was his role as this kind of conservative cultural figure, right? So if you're the head of the FBI, you could say, you know, my job is to just enforce places where there's federal jurisdiction and, you know, that that's it. That's my job. But Hoover had a much more expansive view. And so in the 30s, he starts to make speeches and write columns or have them ghostwritten for him. He writes his first books or has them ghostwritten for him about this idea of crime as a matter of personal morality, as religion in particular, as one of the solutions. And that becomes his theme. He loves to lecture American parents about sending their kids to Sunday school and about attending church. He really doesn't like women who, you know, sit around during the daytime playing bridge and gossiping with their neighbors instead of, you know, dutifully attending to their children and keeping them away from a life of crime. Well, before we leave the 30s, I I wanted to get in here just that this is the moment where political surveillance, the sort of work he was doing when he first entered the, the Justice Department, comes back into 
the main kind of remit of the FBI because FDR in the summer of 1936 basically asks Hoover in a confidential meeting to investigate communism and fascism. The, the, the memo, I liked the quote from Hoover's memo about this meeting where he said the president was, quote, desirous of discussing the question of subversive activities in the United States, particularly fascism and communism. And you imply, too, that like FDR's concern was really exacerbated by the strike waves, of course, of 1934 and then later on of 1937. And that importantly, this is not about investigating particular crimes, but obtaining a quote unquote broad picture of the movements and their potential effect on political life in the country and their capacity to, you know, shut down the economy. This is, of course, the moment of the CIO. Hoover's very preoccupied with John Lewis, the CIO, Harry Bridges of the of the Longshoremen Union, and Harry Braun, the newspaperman and the founder of the newspaper guild. So Hoover was already had these preoccupations, of course, with the with the radical movements, but FDR is giving him this task again. And it's, you know, this is the moment of the second Red Scare. Yeah, we tend to think, you know, about a slightly later moment as being sort of the heyday of of political surveillance. But a lot of that really has its roots in this period in the late 30s, and then in the war itself, which, you know, more than anything else, really expands the FBI, gives it new powers. And it's Franklin Roosevelt who does a lot of that. As you say, he kind of brings Hoover in. He very explicitly says Hoover is going to be in charge of espionage, sabotage, subversion within the United States. And that leads to this huge hiring boom at the FBI, it quadruples in size, more or less, during the Second World War. And it's just all domestic surveillance of one sort or another. Some of it is just fingerprinting wartime workers, but a lot of it is kind of setting the foundation for this expansive domestic intelligence system that's going to then be an essential part of the FBI's work from that point on. And I think it's interesting the way you try to establish a sort of balance of both FDR, but Hoover's more in particular preoccupation with homegrown fascism and homegrown communism. There was Nazi plots during the war that were figured out by the FBI. And even before that, there was sort of as even just as the sort of political surveillance was taking off this the investigation of these kind of Nazi youth camps in America. But overall, in terms of the kind of broad picture that Hoover was gleaning from this new era of political surveillance, I got the impression that Hoover always seemed a little bit more enthusiastic about going after the left. (laughs) Yeah, domestic fascism, I think we tend to forget, was a big concern in the late 30s and early 40s. And then, of course, once the war is on, the question of Nazi agents in the United States, fascist agents of one sort or another, wasn't just hypothetical. One of my favorite case chapters in the book is about these, these saboteurs who come over and are, you know, dropped off from U-boats on Long Island in Florida to basically go around blowing things up in the United States. And they immediately turn and, you know, a couple of them turn themselves into the FBI and the FBI rounds them all up and they're executed by military tribunal, actually a secret military tribunal. But it's a it's a kind of fascinating little set piece. But those were real concerns and, and the FBI actually made a lot of its name doing that sort of thing. But the other piece that was really interesting to me was to see the ways that the FBI's infiltration of the Communist Party in particular really starts during the period of the Nazi Soviet pact. So between 39 and 41, when 
you know, in that context, there's actually pretty good reason to be doing some of that. But then the Soviet Union becomes a U.S. wartime ally, and the FBI still doesn't stop going after the Communist Party, and you get this kind of continuous line up to the Red Scare. Right. Well, and also that, you know, so the post-war years were the years where the Communist Party had its sort of highest and most sunny profile in American life, even though their, their numbers never got that large. The era of the Popular Front and of the victory of, of our ally, the USSR, against the Axis. I mean, it seemed to me that Hoover sort of never gave up on communism as number one enemy. And obviously, that becomes more important in the next few decades. But the contrast between the, this sort of brief moment where the Communist Party was thought of kind of fondly by more people in American life, whether they were just liberals or fellow travelers or actual members, the FBI doesn't ever <laughs> get one over. Right. Yes. Hoover was never a convert, though, of course, at certain moments, it's Hoover and you know the few people in the Communist Party who are the only people in the country who really think the Communist Party is, you know, this enormously powerful organization. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Beverly, one thing I wanted to mention, and I think it's right to do so here, we've talked a lot about what he did, his approach to, to running a government bureaucracy, so on and so forth. But Hoover's ideas, how did he actually think about communism? Anti communism is definitely one of the central causes of Hoover's life. It is kind of part of something that organizes his worldview, in part because he doesn't view it in kind of narrow national security terms, but thinks of the struggle against communism as really this kind of massive existential struggle. And I think that was one piece where I thought it really matters that it is J. Edgar Hoover in particular in this position at this moment in time, because you can conceive of someone else, right? I mean, it's the early Cold War. There's going to be some domestic intelligence, right? You're going to be looking into Soviet espionage, which was real. You know, probably you're going to be looking at the Communist Party, which in fact did have a relationship with the Soviet government. And so anyone in that position would have done some of that. But you can conceive of a different FBI director kind of stopping there, right? Treat this as a national security matter. That's it. You're going to try to figure out who the spies are and let it go. But but Hoover had a much more expansive vision and that had pretty dramatic consequences. I mean, his view was that, you know, communism was a broad ideological, cultural, social, practical threat to the American way of life. He thought of the Communist Party as a subversive organization literally seeking the overthrow of the American government, but more importantly, that this was, you know, kind of a struggle between religiosity and atheistic communism, right? These are the big themes of this much broader cultural campaign, which then, of course, licenses the FBI, in Hoover's mind at least, to be doing really widespread surveillance, surveillance of almost anyone who comes into the orbit of, touches upon the Communist Party, in contrast to something that would be would be much narrower. Yeah, it struck me that one of the things that's tough about Hoover is that we know him from today instead of at the time. And the post-war period is a really sort of striking turning point in your book in terms of his reputation, because there was an extent to which him and the FBI 
did have this image as this sort of this good government administrative vehicle. And he even had a reputation for liberalism on certain issues, sometimes being on the side of civil liberties against some other forces in American life. You know, he opposed, at least internally, Japanese internment during the war. But after 45, this is when, as, you're, as you just described, that he becomes this political embodiment of the anti-communist cause, which then you know, his vision of it becomes really important to people like McCarthy, to the John Birch Society, and people with whom he had kind of complex relationships that are really well rendered in your book. But it can't be denied that the vision that you just described of his, with the way he thought about communism becomes the sort of dominant one for these rising forces of anti-communism, even if some of them were, you know, pursuing those goals in ways that he found sort of sordid or not <laughs> lawful and careful enough. One of the political puzzles of the book, and really in some ways the, the frame of, of Hoover's career, in my mind, is that he stands for these two political traditions, as you suggest. One is this kind of progressive, professional career, apolitical, expert government service. And that's serious. It's a serious part of what he does. It's a serious part of his public reputation. And then ideologically, he's this incredibly powerful, conservative voice on communism, on crime, race, religion, right? A whole host of factors. And the 1940s and 50s, I think, is the period when these two things for him come together most effectively, when he has established control over a very powerful bureaucracy that is is his, the FBI. He's using that bureaucracy in many ways to enforce important elements of his own worldview, particularly on the question of communism. And I think the key, which is in contrast to, to what comes later, is that it makes him incredibly popular. Right. right? Yeah. And this is maybe the most surprising thing about Hoover's career, particularly during these years, is just how popular he was, because we tend to think of him as the kind of the man that nobody liked. But in fact, his popularity ratings are really off the charts during these years in the 70s, 80s, 90 percentiles. And it's not because people didn't know his priorities or even know some of his methods. It's because they did know them and they supported them. And the country was behind this. And the other funny thing, as, as you suggested, he's got this kind of messy relationship with Joseph McCarthy, who is a friend, and they obviously share a lot of ideas. But for many people, including many liberals during this period, Hoover, who is an institution builder, who is someone who at least professes to be observing limits and facts, he's seen as the kind of responsible alternative right, to Joseph right. McCarthy, right? And so he's got all this support at the very moment that McCarthy is kind of being driven out of public life. And I, I did want to mention or ask about, there was the, the situation that Hoover kind of quashed, right? Where McCarthy, there was going to possibly be an investigation into him getting someone in the army drunk, right? And made a pass. Made a pass, something like that. So Hoover, he also did McCarthy a solid. He definitely <laughs> did. So this is, uh, you know, the Red Scare is also the period of the Lavender Scare, which is incredibly complicated for Hoover, right? So it becomes federal policy during these years that if you are gay, you can be fired from your federal job. And one of the things that that produces is just, you know, a swirl of investigation 
and accusation against all sorts of people. I mean, there's this moment when that swirl is around McCarthy. There are some letters coming in saying that McCarthy had, you know, seduced this, I think it was an army lieutenant, if I recall correctly. And then there are a few journalists, actually, who are willing to write about these rumors about McCarthy saying that he's been, you know, taking young Republican men, (laughs) members of the young Republicans kind of back to... uh, hotels in Wisconsin. McCarthy was a groomer. Right. Yeah. This is the story of this moment. And uh, and Hoover helps to quash that for McCarthy. And it's worth noting, and McCarthy very quickly gets married. And I think huh, it's probably, you know, related to wanting, at least in part, to, to quash some of those rumors. I found the way that you described Hoover navigating the Lavender Scare really interesting. Obviously, we can assume well, we know that he felt endangered at this time because he would, you know, send FBI agents to people's homes who said some rumor about him and his sexuality. So at the same time that he was doing the bidding of this homophobic political moment, he was protecting himself and people who, for one reason or another, he uh, felt loyal to. I can't really imagine a more clear depiction of this contrary, conflicted self and sort of work in the world than the Lavender Scare for Hoover. Yeah, one of my favorite moments of research was in trying to just think about what that must have been like for him, right, where he's charged with this enforcement of these federal policies. He's, you know, embracing them publicly. He is sending FBI agents to squash and intimidate people who are are suggesting anything untoward about his own homosexuality. But then there's this moment in 1950 when he and Tolson are together at a farmer's market in LA. Oh, this is amazing. And a reporter notices them, starts following them, And they go into a bookstore, they don't see the reporter, and the reporter just sort of stands there to look at what they're buying at the bookstore, and Tolson is buying a few Westerns, but Hoover is buying these very deep and complicated works of psychoanalysis by a woman named Karen Horney, who was a sort of famous psychoanalyst in that moment, and one of them is called Our Inner Conflicts, and the other is called Self-Analysis. And so I got those books out of the library and started reading them. And, you know, they were they were a kind of sad and interesting portrait. I mean, one of the themes of our inner conflicts is, you know, what does it do to someone when their public image and the self that they are presenting to the world is so at odds with their personal self? What does that do? And her claim is that it makes people rigid. It might make you paranoid. <laughs> it might mean that you you know, uh, want to maintain control over everyone around you. And I, I don't know what Hoover made of those books. I don't even know that he read them, but he did buy them and they seemed full of a, of a kind of complicated and sad set of insights about what he might actually have been experiencing. And the interesting thing about the other book, Self-Analysis, that you point to is that this is sort of Horney's effort to give people the tools to solve this on their own, you know, without going to an analyst or having to be more open with others about what you're going through, which is sort of makes so much sense because it's like, yeah, I might have this problem, but I definitely need to deal with it, you know, just by myself. (laughs) Well, Beverly, there's still a lot to get to. <laughs> of course, Go and Tell Pro, the FBI's surveillance of Dr. King, so on and so forth. But I did want to ask here, since we're kind of in the in the 50s, 
you know, kind of in the popular imagination, a conservative period, the Eisenhower years. We have, of course, in 1955, the founding of National Review. And since we talk a lot about the right on this podcast, I was just wondering, what did they make of Hoover? What did Hoover make of them? Because I also know there was a FBI file on National Review you looked at, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So a lot of the Freedom of Information Act requests that I myself filed were about right-wing movements, conservative figures, in part because we know so much about the FBI and its relationship to the left, hostile relationship to the left. But we actually didn't know that much about Hoover's relationship with the right. And I came of age in graduate school at the moment when the study of conservatism and the American right was really just beginning to explode. And, and I teach a lot about that at Yale. And so I thought, well, how does a figure like Hoover fit into that story? Number one, he's interesting because he's in the state, right? He's this incredibly powerful state actor in a moment that we tend to think of as, you know, the age of kind of liberal state building or the liberal consensus or something like that. But he's this powerful ideological conservative exercising all of this state power. And that, I felt, hadn't really been represented very well in the historical literature, which had mostly looked at figures like Buckley, grassroots movements, occasionally political figures like Goldwater, but not at the state itself. And then... His position in the state gives him a kind of funny relationship with the conservative movement as it starts to develop, because on the one hand, he is a great hero of the conservative movement. And there are declarations, you know, in the early 60s, Hoover is the patron saint of the conservative movement of the far right as it's emerging. But of course, that's very weird because they hate government bureaucrats, right? And so Hoover is always like the one exception, except for J. Edgar Hoover. And then Hoover himself, because he's a state actor, is making a set of judgments about who's legitimate and dependable in the new conservative movement and who's not. So, you know, I think it's probably most useful to see him as kind of like a, an ally of the quote-unquote respectable conservatives, right? The sort of more highbrow conservatives like Buckley. He liked National Review. National Review liked him for the most part. But he was a lot more suspicious of groups like the John Birch Society, which he thought was, you know, kind of conspiratorial and vigilante oriented and a little bit out of control. And then he ran into what actually was something I would have liked to write a lot more about, but it's a biography. So it had to be about Hoover. But this group of ex-FBI agents who become these really important figures on the far right as broadcasters and lecturers and such. And he on the one hand, kind of likes their politics and what they're publicizing, but he doesn't want them going around saying, you know, I speak for J. Edgar Hoover because they're saying some pretty problematic things. It's just an interesting moment where what he has brought is build this organization which has this amazingly untarnished imprimatur for the people who come out of it. So if you're an FBI agent, you've been on the front lines of fighting anti-communism, and these guys are using that reputation to sort of forward their own, first of all, sort of like personal fame goals, but also to really get in the dirt 
of far right politics. And that is a moment where Hoover sort of has to <laughs> reckon with the fact that, well, I made these men and, you know, do I want them to be the face of, of the FBI in politics? That's supposed to be him. He's supposed to be that. <laughs> right, exactly. And then especially during the, the Kennedy years, you know, Hoover, because he's inside the state, has to be maintaining relationships with a, a much more liberal White House, one that is obviously not too fond of the John Birch Society, and in that case, a White House where, he, where he's already got a lot of problems, and he doesn't need that one, too. He's got a lot of problems with RFK's shirt sleeves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are amazing moments. The rivalry with Robert Kennedy, which is you know partly about power and institutional goals and all of that, but but a lot of which is just like he just thinks both Robert and John, but Robert especially, you know, is this like 30-something disrespectful man who keeps taking off his tie and putting his feet on the desk and all of these things that are just sort of shocking and, and abhorrent to Hoover. Well, and it makes sense that he, you know, became so fond of Nixon and Nixon of him because they both sort of saw each other as sort of anti-Kennedy figures. And also sort of like, you know, you have a line where you say, Nixon was famously awkward, Hoover famously aloof. The social unease may have helped draw them together. Two middle-class nobodies making it good on the world stage. Our listeners will have heard our long episode on Nixon and Nixon Agonistas recently, so that will resonate with Wills' depiction of Nixon. But then to have, you know, this sort of infatuation with Nixon and then end up with the Kennedys in the, in the White House instead, who are sort of the opposite of that in every way, is a tough moment for Hoover. Yeah, it might seem strange to say, but the Hoover-Nixon relationship was one of my favorite relationships in the book, in part because they're so close for so long, really beginning in the late 40s, kind of around the Alger Hiss case, and then uh, really becoming very good friends when Nixon is vice president, that lasting through Nixon's kind of years in the wilderness after he loses the 1968 election, and then obviously on into the Nixon presidency, though there they run into some conflicts. But what was fascinating is that these are, you know, two of the, I think, reputationally least likable, most awkward <laughs> men in all of American politics. And they liked each other so much. Yeah. <laughs> and they both felt really comfortable with each other. And there are these sort of notes back and forth, like, when we're together, we can really let down our hair and talk freely and... Uh, just kind of funny to think about. <laughs> Two uh, misfit toys finding each other. <laughs> well, one thing to get us into the sort of civil rights stuff, something that I found really interesting was how you contrasted Hoover's approach to the sort of enforcement of anti-lynching, you know, which he did try to stop and investigate lynchings in the Truman era. And then when the civil rights movement kicks off, he doesn't see it as the same <laughs> obligation to protect, say, the Freedom Riders as they engage in sort of civil disobedience. Could you talk about kind of how Hoover sees the beginnings of the civil rights movement and, and how it sort of challenges his deeply ingrained, as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, sort of ideas about racial hierarchy? Yeah, so there's a kind of baseline 
racist outlook that he has come of age with, like many white Americans of the period in Washington and elsewhere. And that, of course, continues to inform a lot of what he does. But there are these interesting moments. So in the 1940s, when he both is pressured to, but in many ways voluntarily tries to kind of bring federal investigative power, federal legal power to bear to stop Southern lynchings. The FBI does these massive investigations. I think for Hoover, there are two things that really are problematic to him and make him quite committed to those particular investigations. So one is the use of violence. And the second is that they are often to him seen as people who are thumbing their nose at the federal government, at federal law, at federal law enforcement. So in many ways, he feels that the FBI's legitimacy and the broader legitimacy of the federal government is at stake in these Southern, often white supremacist groups or incidents who are saying, we're going to do this and you know the, the law can't be enforced. So he's pretty committed in those very particular instances. But you know when the kind of nonviolent civil disobedience phase of the civil rights movement really takes off in the early 60s, he sees that as the same kind of defiance of the law. And civil disobedience is in many ways a claim that there's there's a higher law and that therefore these, these particular laws don't need to be obeyed. And he really, really didn't like that, particularly when it was coming from black radicals or even figures like Martin Luther King. One of Hoover's quotes he's probably best known for is his remark that Dr. King was the most notorious liar in the country. And that was after, I think, King had criticized the FBI's failure to protect civil rights workers. And some of our listeners will know the FBI's role in trying to get Dr. King to kill himself, bugging phones, hotel room recordings, so on and so forth. But what was the kind of Hoover-King relationship? How much was Hoover directly responsible, I guess, for how Dr. King was treated? Well, I think he was quite responsible. (laughs) And that moment that you mentioned, which was a public statement by Hoover in late 1964, so right after the 1964 presidential election, in a press conference, he calls King the most notorious liar in America. And that becomes their moment of greatest public confrontation. But that happened after several years in which the FBI had been investigating King. And that investigation had gone through a series of phases, each of which was kind of escalating by that point. So it it started out investigating a couple of communist party affiliated advisors of King's. It seems very clear that in fact, you know, these couple of figures that they were interested in were in fact part of the Communist Party's secret and open apparatus during the late 50s in particular, but even after they they were working with King. So that's sort of interesting, but that's a way in that then escalates to become a series of uh, wiretaps on other aides of King's and then ultimately on King himself, partly The FBI is getting worried about civil disobedience. Partly, Hoover's really mad that King has started criticizing the FBI. And then that itself 
escalates by 1964 into these bugs in King's hotel rooms, as well as wiretaps on his office and home, in which the FBI is finding out all sorts of information about his extramarital sex life, which then it begins peddling around and that Hoover is very interested in. So all of that has happened. And then you get this moment of public confrontation, which also has a kind of secret side to it, which is that this is the moment the FBI sends some of these tape recordings, as well as a kind of anonymous threatening note to King that becomes known as this this letter kind of urging him to commit suicide, although they don't say that explicitly. So that's kind of the, the height of the confrontation. But the really interesting thing to me about the aftermath of that confrontation is today we think King is the hero, Hoover is the villain. Obviously, I think that's true. But when you look at public opinion polls in 1964-65, many more people are are siding with Hoover in that confrontation than are siding with King. Something that struck me is that when King is killed, there's a moment where Hoover fears that he'll be sort of held responsible for it, if, if I can put it that way. And then, what is it, a year Later, Fred Hampton is killed, not by FBI agents, but by police, but they were involved in in investigating the the Panthers and involved in that plot. So could you talk a little bit about those two moments? Yeah, they happen, as you say, very close together. And it's true that Hoover's very concerned because of all of this history of public animosity with King, that when King is killed, one, that there are going to be suggestions that maybe the FBI was involved. And there have been since King's death, a a whole raft of kind of conspiracy theories, theories about the investigation. But two, that people were going to say the FBI wasn't going to be able to conduct an effective investigation because of its racism, because of its bias against King, because of this whole history. And so in a funny way, I think that actually makes him and the Bureau more broadly, even more committed to just pulling out all the stops. And it is a massive and really quite difficult investigation. And I think that they are very, very concerned about their own legitimacy in that moment. But they are, of course, at the same time, still engaged in not only surveillance and public animosity toward civil rights activists, and in particular, Black Power and Black Panther activists by this period. So it doesn't actually make Hoover pull back from any of that. And a lot of those are not just surveillance or criticism, right? They are active disruption and manipulation. And then in the case of Fred Hampton, active information sharing with the police who then go in and and murder Hampton in this raid. Yeah. Just another moment where there's a contradiction with Hoover that is not resolved and perhaps is not resolvable. (laughs) He keeps doing that. Yeah. Well, of course, talking about, you know, Hoover's contradictory nature or or the tensions in his life and, and person. I think one of the most interesting narrative features of the biography is after calling Dr. King the most notorious liar in the country, after everything we've just said at the same time, is the infiltration of the KKK and white supremacist groups in the South. Yeah, COINTELPRO, of course, we all think about as being aimed at the left, and, and a lot of it was, I mean, almost almost all of it, but there was this program called COINTELPRO 
white hate that was aimed at white supremacist organizations, the Klan, neo-Nazis, a whole host of, uh, of organizations. And it starts in 1964, right at exactly the moment that Hoover is doing almost the same things to Martin Luther King. And they really, they're infiltrating the Klan. They're planting false press stories about the Klan. They're trying to sow, you know, division and paranoia in the Klan. I mean, all of these things that they're famously doing to the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, they in fact are also doing to pretty good effect with the Klan. And some of the, the memos are kind of funny about that because they're like, well, some of the techniques that we used, say, against the Communist Party really aren't going to apply here because you can't write anything very long because the Klansmen won't. Uh, you know, <laughs> the communists, you write some man some like fake manifesto, they're going to read it, they're going to debate it, they're going to get way too into it, but the Klansmen aren't going to read anything. And so you got to have some different techniques there. Yeah. I enjoyed the detail of, you know, if writing a letter kind of under the name of a supposed Klansman to include some spelling mistakes, short sentences, not very long letters, that kind of thing. Exactly. <laughs> well, Beverly, we should probably start turning toward the end of this conversation. We could obviously keep going. But one of the questions I wanted to ask toward the end here was, you know, he died in office in 1972. He hung on till he literally ended. If he had retired earlier, would we think of Hoover differently or, or kind of would all this stuff have eventually come out anyway? Well, that's Part of where the book starts is with that question, right? And with this moment in, in 1959, when he's a hero of the Eisenhower administration, he is kind of the hero of the anti-communist cause. He's incredibly popular. And this movie, The FBI Story, comes out starring all sorts of big Hollywood figures. And I think if he had retired in that moment, we would remember him really, really differently. You know, there would be all sorts of grounds to criticize what he had done during the Red Scare. But the fact is, there wasn't a lot of public opposition to him until the period that followed in which a couple of things happened. One, he just starts getting old and a little less capable, I think, uh, certainly over the course of the 60s. And as a result of being old, he's seen as being kind of out of touch. His pronouncements about, you know, the rabble rousing college students and how he doesn't like them, very popular with conservatives, not so popular with the new generation. And then it's also the period in which the FBI commits many of the most kind of famous abuses and excesses that some are known during Hoover's lifetime. A lot come out right after his death. And it's really the period that kills his reputation. I think it's what we remember best. It's what the church committee really investigated after he died. And I think it is the period, though there's lots to criticize earlier, that gave him his kind of reputation as, as a great villain. Well, given sort of what we were discussing about the way that you sort of treat Hoover as a lens to think about the sort of revolution in governance in this country, the sort of rise of, of federal power, of bureaucracies, of sort of technological management, as well as the exertion of power from above and into people's lives during the New Deal. How do you see the sort of trajectory that American governance takes toward the end of his life as representing that, you know, because it seems like Hoover is sort of riding the wave of the rise of federal legitimacy for the first half of his life. 
And maybe by the end of his life, <laughs> as the federal government is seen as less legitimate by so many different factions for so many different reasons, he sort of is subject to the same dwindling sense of legitimacy that, that the rest of the government is experiencing. Yeah, I think that's a great way to characterize it. I think, you know, as kind of challenges to federal power, skepticism of institutions, skepticism of the Cold War security state, right? As all of those things begin to flourish in the 1960s, a lot of them for very good reason get aimed at the FBI and at Hoover himself. I mean, there's a funny moment after he dies when Nixon, who was such a good friend of his, is going through Watergate and is talking on the Nixon tapes and, and sort of suggests that if Hoover hadn't died when he died, he might have been able to help contain all of this, <laughs> right? To the, to the degree that like Watergate and then the church committee, right? Those are the moments that the wheels really come off of, of, of faith in government faith in institutions, faith in political actors. And so Nixon and his advisors sort of wonder if Hoover had been around, if he would have been able to actually maybe not hold it all together, but do a little better than, than everybody else was doing. That's interesting to think about. But in many ways, you know, what gets exposed then in the 70s after his death means that this institution that he dedicated his life to, to its legitimacy, etc., it's actually what he did during that period that once it's exposed, really calls that legitimacy into question for decades to come. I think, you know, in the end, Hoover kind of damaged the institution that he cared so much about. Wow. Well, that might be a good place to end it. This has been our conversation with Beverly Gage, author of the incredible new biography, G-Man, J. Edgar Hoover and the Making of the American Century, published last month by Viking. Beverly, what an incredible book. Thank you for sharing the fruits of your labor with us. Well, thank you for reading all 58 chapters. <laughs> <laughs> it was really a pleasure to read. For listeners, whatever thing you felt we didn't cover in enough detail, I promise you it's covered in a great amount of detail in Beverly's book. Thanks so much, Beverly. Yeah, thanks. This was really fun. All right. See you next time, listeners. 